My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. The women all had to wear skirts, but they had to wear parachutes, and the parachutes had straps that go uh, between your legs and up to your back. So to tighten the straps, you know, of course, the, the skirts were all got all hiked up. Hello and welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves. I'm producer Claire Tregesser filling in for our host Katie Hafner today. And today is a very special episode, as you'll hear. Uh, We're going to be talking about a woman who's about to turn 100 years old. She was in London during World War II. Uh, And she worked for the U.S. military in the precursor to the CIA. Uh, She then went on to have four children and a long career as a librarian in Wayland, Massachusetts. And she's also my grandmother. Okay, well, are you ready? Are you ready for your exam? Oh, my goodness. Did you study? Uh, My objective on this story is to get a D. (laughs) All right. Well, in case it's not already clear, I know today's guest very well. His name is Charlie Tregesser, and he's my dad. Are you you sure you know me well? Well, that's true. I know you well enough to give you a hard time about studying for what we're talking about here today. Yes. Yes. And I think you know, in talking about my mother, um, it's one of the themes is, is how much I don't know about her life and her intern, her emotional life. And uh, um, so that's been interesting for me to try and um, pull this all together. <laughs> I think... Um, you know, it's it's hard to talk. I think it's hard to talk about your mother because you're so close to her. You're not accustomed to thinking of her as an independent person. <laughs> um, and also, in particular, my mother, mom, is uh, very much, very much does not like to talk about herself. I think some of it's sort of generational. She comes from the the so-called greatest generation. And the idea of talking about yourself is sort of considered to be vanity. Um, I've been, I try to get stories out of her and she'll talk for five minutes and then say, I, I'm talking way too much about myself. So, um, and then the other thing is, I think she's just a... Mm, well, her contradiction is she's an extremely sharp and intelligent uh, woman, but she doesn't think very much of herself. So she'll pepper her stories with sort of deprecating comments. So it's very difficult to get a straight story out of her. <laughs> so anyway. Well, first of all, her name is Mary Tregesser. Mary Stuart Tregesser. Yes. And she's going to turn 100 years old in April. Yes. And she doesn't want any fuss about it. Oh, she, 
she she really doesn't. She's when the subject of her hundredth birthday came up, her first reaction was, "I'm not going to be here." To which I said, "What are you going to be in Florida or something?" And, <laughs> and she and then her next reaction was, "I don't want to be the center of attention. I don't want people making a fuss about me. I really don't want that." So we've been negotiating with her. Well, first, I wanted to play a clip from her. Um, I've recorded a few Zoom calls with her in the past year or so. In this one, she's telling me that I should be keeping a diary during the pandemic. But then she told me that she never kept a diary. I'm sort of glad I didn't keep a diary. I don't want to read about I'm not sure I was the best of mothers. Grandpa was wonderful when he was around and he was a great playmate and he would get the whole neighborhood doing things. But he he concentrated most most of his efforts on his business. I had to carry on and I don't think I was that good about it, but there you are. So that goes with that self-deprecating theme where she's basically saying she's not a good mother, even though I know that you don't feel that way. <laughs> she's a wonderful person to be around, and she's so smart, and um, I love her dearly. So I don't want to talk about the problems about her too much. <laughs> yeah, well, and I have so many stories about what a great grandmother she's been to me and... Yes. And a really strong influence on my view of what women are capable of. So to go back, we already know she was born 100 years ago. Well, not 99 so far. 99. 1922. So can you tell me a little bit about her childhood? Well, she was born um, She was born at home in uh, Hamburg, New York, which is just outside of Buffalo. Um, she was born at home because her, her mother, Florence, had her older sister in the hospital, but I think because of the uh, influenza um, issues really in the influenza pandemic, did not have a good, uh, was not very helped in the hospital. So she decided to um, give birth to my mother at home. What has she told you about what it was like growing up? So the, the, the lineage of uh, strong women starts with her mother. She was um, a Unitarian, early strong supporter of uh, women's suffrage. There's one story about how, how they had sent her over to a family friend's house to stay there. Um, I, I can't remember the reason why, but anyway, my mother, the, the, slept there in the morning of got up very early and the family friend was a was asleep so she walked home and apparently it was like a, a, a couple of miles and she was uh maybe three at the time oh my gosh and came up to the the doorway of her family house very proud and rang the doorbell and her, her mother answered the door and was like what are you doing here <laughs> and she was, she was, she remembers being so proud. Maybe she was four. I don't know. She grew up in the depression. Um, 
was a child. And what has she told you about how her family did during the Depression? Well, um, so her father lost his job and was unemployed for a number of years. Um, I think they were fortunate in having uh, the support of some relatives, but they, as a family, were were, uh, poor. Um, And they had to go live with my father's sister, Betty Stewart, who ran a school in uh, Pennsylvania for first grade through up through high school, um, sort of a private preparatory school. Okay, so then grandma went to that school and then she went to college? And then she went to college and uh, she went to Swarthmore through a, a family connection gave her a recommendation and she describes herself as unworthy of going to Swarthmore. She said, I was, I was lucky and I shouldn't have gone there. I, you know, I normal under any other circumstances wouldn't have gotten in. Um, but she did quite well there. So this is, I take this as another instance of her talking down about herself. So, you know, she's a, an amazing reader. <laughs> yeah. Um, she just consumes books. So she studied uh, English literature at Swarthmore. And, you know, of course, the the war had, had begun while she was in college. And so then how did she get involved in the war effort? Again, through a, a, a connection, I'd heard about these uh, positions that were open in London, and she leapt at the chance. Um, because she wanted to get to England. Because of her love of English literature. Of, yes. If you ever want to meet an Anglophile, it's her. <laughs> I should say bef- before she got involved in the war, she met my dad. She says at her Swarthmore graduation, she said her parents were itching <laughs> itching to leave. <laughs> um because they had been invited to an engagement party for her sister. And um, at that engagement party, met Charles Tregesser's brother. Um, and that began began a romance between them. So it was two, two brothers in relationship with two sisters. So she graduated from college, and then she met your dad. Yes, but they didn't get married then. No, no. And then she, and then she got involved in the war she, effort. Then, she, then she had an opportunity to yeah get involved in the war effort, and she was offered a position in the research and analysis department of the OSS. Um, the OSS being the the precursor to the CIA. So she was not she was not a spy or anything like that, um, but part of a research department. Actually, I wanted, because she wrote this essay, and I wanted to read a couple paragraphs of it so that we have it in her own words. Yes. We were to tell no one when we were leaving. There would be a phone call. My small army trunk was packed with warm clothes, even though it was August. It consisted of office clothes, skirts, and sweaters. Women didn't wear pants then. We did not wear uniforms, as we were supposed to blend into the London scene. I did not have any idea how long I would be away, but this was wartime and there was no point in asking. And then she boards a luxury cruise ship that had been repurposed 
and they set sail for Glasgow, and then eventually she goes to London. Our band of eight, the eight women, though we lived on the first-class deck, were assigned to the former third-class dining room, three decks down for all our meals. The troops ate in our first-class dining room, as that was large, but they lived below in third-class quarters. Thus, there were always lines on the stairways of men waiting for their meals. They carried their metal mess kits and cups, which they would bang together as we would go up or down to our dining room. The reception was nerve-wracking for shy old me. Right. Just just to explain that a little bit. So she was rated as an officer. Um, so, so the troops, the enlisted troops were not allowed to talk to them. They're certainly not allowed to catcall or anything like that. So instead, they banged their mess kits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really seem that much better, but... <laughs> well... It's, it's so, yeah, it's interesting, you know, in, in, in the wartime situation she was in, she was generally one of a few women that were surrounded by lots of uh, male uh, troops, soldiers. Yeah. So she arrived in London. I'm not quite sure of the, of the year it was, the war was still going on. They were still uh, bombing London with, uh, with rockets. And I, try and ask her, well, were you afraid? And she says, oh, I was, I was too naive and clueless to be scared. <laughs> and um, when she talks about London, she talks about how cold it was and uh, how hungry everybody was because of the rations were short at that time. Um, and generally the, the buildings were heated with one, one coal heater um, she lived with an, other uh, women in an apartment, which we recently found on Google Maps. It was uh, sort of like a two-story apartment with a big uh, sort of curved glass window. And um, she said later on she found out they got in that apartment because no one wanted to be there in case there was a – if there was a bomb explosion, the glass window would have been lethal Oh yeah. in terms of the glass shards. One sort of vivid story she's told me about. So she was in London during the during the Battle of the Bulge, and she said I, this was a, a a recent Christmas. I asked her, so what did you spend Christmas in London? And she said, yes, I uh, a man I had met on the troop ship coming over. He had been fighting in Europe, and he came back, and um, he came to my apartment, and I baked him an apple pie using up my lard ration. <laughs> and um, he was just back from the Battle of the Bulge and spent the evening uh, sitting on her couch weeping. Gosh. Um, just because of the, you know, the, the trauma of it. Was she there until the end of the war? So at, when, when the war was over, and by the way, she was corresponding this whole time with my dad who... Uh, graduated college on an accelerated schedule and then was sent off to the Pacific. Um, so I think she went right from London to, um, they uh, flew into Germany. Um, and she talks about how it's sort of embarrassing being on the plane was because, you know, the women all had to wear skirts, but they had to wear parachutes and the parachutes had straps that 
go uh, between your legs oh, and gosh. up to your back. So to tighten the straps, you know, of course, the, the skirts were all got all hiked up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she was stationed there and helping prepare for the Nuremberg trials. Um, so she was doing research on that. Um, after that, she went home, but then was offered a, a job um, as part of the Marshall Plan that was being set up. This is the p- big American-led post-war relief effort. She said they were working on uh, writing position papers for the upcoming um, peace conferences that were happening by sort of uh, researching what the president or other U.S. officials had said and writing them up as a position paper. And then at the end, um, there was a U.N. peace conference happening in Paris that was just getting set up. And they offered her a position there where she set up an entire department for providing uh, data for the peace conference, the U.N. peace conference. So she talks about uh, then coming home and um, seeing my dad again. And she had an opportunity to go back to Paris and work for the UN. But this is the, I think this was the, her, um, you know, the, her big life choice. Um, she decided to uh, stay and marry my dad. So, um, so she <laughs> had a far more eventful life than, than I had growing up. I mean, she went from all of this travel and danger in some ways and responsibility. And then she came back and she had four kids and she <laughs> lived in a suburb of Boston. Yeah, pretty much. She, she, she would say, well, it was quite a change. And I said, well, and she, she will admit that it was in some ways a come down. Um, and uh, she said she was felt, quite lonely that time because she did you know she didn't really know she, she said she i didn't i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> you know as in terms of being a mother and all that um yeah well it's it's a little hard for me to believe but again that's that self-deprecating thing where she presented as she didn't know what she was doing and was not a good mother but that seems to not be the consensus among you or your siblings. No, they they gave us a, a, a absolutely wonderful childhood. I lived in a great neighborhood where there were other kids, and we were just free as a bird to go roaming around wherever we wanted to. And um, my mother was quite um, active in the town. Um, she worked for the League of Women Voters. Uh, she volunteered at their church and then she eventually came to um volunteer at the at the town library which was a beautiful old uh, town library she did not have a library science degree or anything like that but she started out as a volunteer there and eventually was hired and became one of the town librarians i wanted to play one other clip actually talking about you in college So you went to Amherst College, and I asked her what she and your dad were thinking about you getting involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. 
we parents, the Nanda wasn't the only one that was having a, a hard time uh, keeping not not just in touch, but in understanding your college age kids at that point. Everybody was rebelling and then not appreciating the opportunity in our mind. What happened is my mom and dad were not ready to deal with teenagers. <laughs> they were such kind uh, people and in, in, in naive in a sense of, you know, not knowing what to do. You know, it, it, it was not just me, but, you know, everybody of my age, you know, we had these wonderful childhoods, but seemingly when we hit high school, you know, it was this odd phenomenon of, of people being given great childhoods and then all at once together deciding they wanted nothing more to do with it. With, with the, you know, um, nice American way of life, sort of a feeling like it was all meaningless or something like that. So, so those were really difficult years for her because she felt like she didn't know what was going on with her children. Um, and, um, so it was even before I went off to college, um, the, the high school years were, were, were hard for her and she didn't know what to do. So that's, that's, she felt very inadequate at that time. And at the same time, you know, my father, um, was, he was a wonderful guy to be around, um, uh, but he became more wrapped up in his business. Um, and so he was not around very much. And then she and your dad were married for a long time. When did he die? So he died in um, 1985. He died suddenly at a very young age, 60. Um, and it was a big shock. And um, let's see. My, my dad was her hero. I think you could say the love of her life. Um, she still talks about um, and uh yeah so she he died in nineteen eighty five and uh she she never remarried, so she's been living on her own since for the last thirty six years. Um, and uh, for a long time, she lived by herself in the house in Wayland and continued to work at the library. And, um, you know, after a few years, uh, took the opportunity and then began to, began to travel. So she was going to um, other places, but, but England at least once a year often more than once, 
she would go to London for theater? Yes, she was always looking over the theater listings as what was coming in London, and she'd go over just to see theater. She'd take uh, tours to go visit uh, authors, the town where Virginia Woolf lived in. She did any number of literary tours to go visit Jane Austen's home. And so now she's become this grand matriarch of the family, even though she <laughs> right. much she wouldn't want to describe that way. Right. Much to her chagrin, she's become the family matriarch. <laughs> She has four kids and seven grandkids, many of whom call her G. G, yes. Yes, that, that, was, that was quite funny. I think one of the grandkids, as a joke, you know, started calling her OG, as in original, <laughs> either original gangster or original grandma, one of the two, and then it got shortened to just G. So, um you know, eventually that the house in Wayland became too much for her. So uh, she moved in with us to become the first floor tenant. And she she's continues to live quite independently. Her main fear in life is not becoming a burden <laughs> to us, which is laughable because we've had other tenants living with us in the house and they were infinitely much more of a burden than my mother was. <laughs> but she's... She's she's very concerned about that. In, in fact, as a landlord to her, it's very difficult because she won't tell me <laughs> if something's broken or something's wrong. And she is also very a very sharp woman. Notices things. Um, it's kind of nice her getting older. She feels a little freer to express her opinions. <laughs> <laughs> So she'll come out and say things, um, you know, but she'll interrogate her. Recently, some of her grandchildren moved to Texas and, you know, they were talking about all the things they like to do in Texas. And she looked at them and said, have you registered to vote yet? And no, they hadn't. And she said, have you visited your public library? <laughs> no, they hadn't. <laughs> She's also freer with her stories, too. I can now get her to tell stories. Whereas before, she would say, oh, you know, whatever. She'd just dismiss it. So you were in, in London in World War II, Mom. Yes, well, you know, I didn't appreciate it at the time or something like that. But now she'll actually tell me stories about it. So I feel like at this very late date, I'm finally getting to know a little bit about my mother's life which is a very strange sensation. So 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 what do you wish she knew about how you think about her? Well, I tell her. <laughs> she doesn't buy it. But I do point out to her that um you know, all of her children, all of her grandchildren have turned out to be extraordinarily fine people. And she agrees with that. She can't argue with that. <laughs> so, um, so I do uh, try and tell her uh, things like that. She she dismisses most of it, but I don't know if she, you know, uh, takes it to her heart or, or not. Um, I. Uh, I want to tell her that um, 
you know, I feel like in terms of being self-deprecating and, um, and uh, worrying about things, I got a lot of that from her. I'd never tell her this, but, <laughs> and I feel like the being self-deprecating is, it's been a help to me and also a, uh, something of an obstacle. I mean, uh, you know, being a self-deprecating person is, um, see, now I'm bragging about being a self-deprecating person, um, is, you know, you don't quite take yourself as seriously. Um, so that's the good side of it. You know, the bad side of it is you don't, you hesitate about putting yourself forward. You know, this, these sort of, Yankee values of being modest and uh, humble and all those things are, are, are have their good and bad sides. Uh, so I feel like I'm got a lot of copy of her mind. You know, going back to what my mom, what mom uh, said to me is this: everybody. Everybody's private lives is an untold tale. That uh, struck me very strongly. So, you know, I, I feel like all these stories are just little glimpses into what her emotional life was and is. Um, so, it's a very patchy story, but... The, that's how it has to be, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think about how lucky we are that she's still around and can tell us some of these stories and fill in at least some of that patchwork. And so I think we should leave it there. I'd like to thank my dad, Charlie Tregesser, for letting me torture him with all these probing <laughs> questions. I think he did really well on his exam. <laughs> Don't don't let your don't let your daughters grow up to be reporters. Ask mama, she'll know what to do. Well, that's it this week for our mothers ourselves. Our theme music was written and composed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mansion is our artist in residence. Katie Hafner is our host, and we'll be back next time. And I'm producer Claire Tregesser. Please visit us at OurMothersOurselves.com and add the word that best describes your mother to the Mother's Word Cloud. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odor Deck Studios in San Francisco. And thank you again for joining us. I'm